Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the ESV version. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all that believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, for that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. The sound system works well. Can I just tell you how excited and happy I am to be here? Joni and Kathleen and Aaron and I left here just about 18 years ago. And I remember as we drove out First Street, going past the high school, a group of people with signs held up. And we felt so loved, even at a point when we were leaving. It was just a wonderful moment for us that was, in some ways, the capstone of 17 and a half years uh, of wonderful moments. Now that I'm retired from active pastoral ministry, I can say without fear of contradiction, that this was my favorite church that I ever served. (laughs) Now, I've changed a little. You'll you'll notice I'm still wearing the same robe that I wore at the end. This was my father's robe, actually. So it's over 70 years old. And the hood is a doctoral hood because a few years ago I was able to earn a PhD. But this is also my my father's hood. Um, So... I wear these as part of a tradition, uh, who I am and, and where I came from. One thing that's different is, is I now preach use, uh, uh, using a little notebook like this. And the reason is because when I was here, I, I used to preach uh, with my Bible open and stick it notes on it until one Easter, Easter, members of the choir, <laughs> in between services, rearranged my post-it notes. Now, they will remain nameless, but you'll notice that Kathy is laughing uh, a little more than the rest. So So many good memories that I have. Well, this morning, uh, I hope you noticed uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul 
I suspect Philippi was his favorite church, but I think Thessalonica had to be a close second. Did you notice how grateful he was to those folks in Thessalonica? And you know, the thing that always impresses me is that he, he was only there for three weeks before he got run out of town. But the church was established in just three weeks that became a church known all throughout Greece for their labor of love and their steadfastness uh, of hope. Well, truthfully, that's the way I think about Kishwaukee, a church known for its labors of love and its steadfastness of hope and its hard work uh, for the gospel. As we look at this text, uh, I'm going to do two things today. Um, For some of you that know me, this will be somewhat old news, but for those of you that are new and that I don't know, you don't know me, I'm going to be able to tell you a little bit about, about my story and then weave it into our story here uh, at Kishwaukee. So, when Paul planted this church, the text tells us, I believe, that there were two things that were at work in the life of that church. The first was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and the second was a, a, a natural kind of work that revolved around the relationships that people had with one another. By the way, I love children, and I don't mind if they make a little bit of noise. That is fine with me. So, uh, that's great. The supernatural reason is the Holy Spirit, the ultimate cause of everything that happened in Thessalonica, but also everything that happens here, right? And then the relationships they had with others. Those labors of love were not individual labors. That was done in community. And, and that's true here uh, as well. So the thing I want us to focus on this morning, the, the biblical truth that I want to suggest jumps out at us from this text is this that the way disciples are made, remember Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The making of disciples is about the work of the Holy Spirit on the one hand and relationships where we imitate others on the other. Now, I'm going I'm to jump ahead. This is actually further in the text. I'm going to say it now. Kishwaukee has person after person after person mature in their faith such that if a young Christian would simply imitate what they see in those older believers, they would become those mature disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. After 42 years, I don't believe in 10 steps to discipleship programs anymore. Because when all is said and done, the way real discipleship happens is when the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which every one of you has and received the moment you put your faith in Christ as Savior, the work of the Holy Spirit enabling you to imitate those older Christians. You know, the last time I was here was for Warren McGee's funeral. And I remember in the social hall saying something, Is there anyone here that didn't become a better person, a better follower of Jesus Christ for knowing Warren McGee? That's happening all the time among you because of who you are in Jesus Christ. And that's my story. So I think we have some pictures that we're going to show. There's the first one. Now, you will not probably recognize too many people there, but 
That is my grandfather. My mother's father. That is Billy Graham. That is my aunt, who was Billy Graham's secretary for five years in England at the beginning of the establishment of his organization in Europe. My grandfather was on the organizing British committee, though he was from the north of Ireland, and he was there at that meeting. Frankly, I grew up thinking I was related to Billy Graham because I heard so many stories <coughs> about him. In the next picture, this is the gravestone for my father's father. Now, I never met him. He died in 1928 when my father was just eight years of age. But from this man, William Smith, came my father, his only son, the five children that my father had, and now the many grandchildren and great-grandchildren, many of whom continue to follow in the faith of, our, of my grandfather, their great and great-grandfather. Now, when he died in 1928, there was no gravestone. It was the Depression. I'm sure my grandmother didn't have the money. So four or five years ago, the five siblings uh, got together and had this uh, gravestone made, and then we went up and dedicated it uh, a couple years uh, ago. In the next picture, you're going to, now this one doesn't, doesn't look so good, but there again is Billy Graham, and that is a young William Graham Smith. That's my father. You'll notice the date, April 3rd, 1946. Billy Graham still worked for Youth for Christ in those days, and he was coming to Belfast to do a crusade in the city, and my father was on the organizing committee uh, with him. That's something of my heritage of faith growing up and why I thought I was almost related uh, to the man. As I continued to grow up, as I, you know, I was born in 1954, so I'm, what, 52 uh, at this point? <laughs> my parents had me baptized at the Knox Presbyterian Church in Dundas, Ontario, Canada. I was born in Hamilton. Um, I, I, w I went to church all the time. Um, and I didn't always like it. Uh, I don't know about you, but when you're, you know, eight, nine, ten years of age, and it's a hot summer day in Philadelphia, and your mom says you still have to wear a tie, and the sanctuary isn't air-conditioned, I can't honestly say it was fun. <laughs> but week after week, year after year, they took me to church. And what happened? I learned the great hymns of the church. I learned the scriptures as they were taught week after week after week. I saw mature Christians praying up front. But I also saw families go through tragedies. I saw a family I remember whose eight-year-old son developed leukemia, and he died very quickly. And the grief and the sorrow of that family, but then the church surrounding him. So we go on to the next picture. That's my family in 1962. That's we, Trevor. Only four of us are left. Both my mom and dad have passed, and my older sister, Valerie, just passed away this year. In the next picture, that's Trevor as a fifth-grade safety patrolman in Philadelphia. So I just want you to know I was always a law and order kind of guy. The next picture. This is when 
we were brand new here at Kishwaukee. 1987, December. Kathleen and Aaron, our twins, and then Colin, who was a very happy big brother uh, at that particular point in time. When Katie and Aaron were still not crawling, which is a wonderful time in life, because once they start to crawl, it's all over. But uh, Colin had one of those little Fisher-Price doctor kits. And I don't know if you've ever seen those, but the stethoscope actually works. And uh, Kathleen was, she goes by Kathleen now, by the way. Uh, Kathleen was on a blanket in the living room in the old church house. Remember the old church house? And uh, Joni and I were in the kitchen, and Colin was next to Kathleen, and he had a stethoscope out, and he was listening. And all of a sudden, he calls out, and he says, Mom, Dad, I can hear Jesus walking around in Kathleen's heart. Isn't that a great ad? The next picture is a picture of us uh, out in Colorado uh, just about the time we left here. So this is probably how many of you will remember Kathleen and Aaron and Colin uh, at that point. But of course, those were some of the happiest days of our life until November 6th, 2002. And... That was the morning that I got a call from the dean of students at William and Mary to tell me that Colin had been killed uh, in an accident. Uh, he was riding his bike to math class and a, a truck uh, had run him over. It's the most terrible news I think anybody could ever get. One of the things we learned, of course, is that we weren't alone in that. There are many others who have gone through the exact same experience. Joni knew, however, that I was going to be telling you this this morning, and she said, Trevor, don't forget to tell them that they saved my life at Kishwaukee when Colin died. That if you hadn't been there for our family, we don't know what would have happened. And can't imagine someone going through something like that without a family of fellow believers to support us. You know, the morning I found out, I went over to the school and uh, asked Bob Prasader if he would drive me because I didn't think I could. He dropped everything, drove me up to Rockford Memorial Hospital where I had to tell Joni what had happened. That's the worst, worst conversation I've ever had to have with anybody. Then he drove us back to the high school. We had to get Kathleen and Aaron out of class and tell them what had happened. They're just 14 years of age. How do you comprehend something like that? But you all were there and helped us through all of that. Brad, you went to the funeral home and you looked at Colin to see if we could go and view him. And how grateful we've always been because we got to say that final goodbye uh, to him at that point. People that would come to the door wouldn't say where they'd just come in and give me a hug and then leave. That was Jesus coming and supporting us and loving us uh, in those moments. 
So when I hear Paul's words to the Thessalonians, I think of you and all that you did. So that's something of my story. Now, what's the next slide, by the way? I, I should know this, but oh, there you go. Okay, that's Kathleen and, I mean, Joni and me now. Um, we, we both uh, ride bikes. So I've done about 3,000 miles on my bike since last June, um, which is really irritating because I think I should be like slender and thin and just really fit, but it's just, it's just not true. So, that's a, so the next slide. That's Kathleen and Aaron now. That's her husband, Carrie. Um, that's the last time I've seen Aaron in a suit, and I suspect the last time I'll ever uh, see him <laughs> in a suit. He's not a suit wearer. Uh, Kathleen is an accountant, lives in uh, Chicago with her husband, Carrie, who's an engineer for BP. Uh, they have a little boy, Miles, uh, seven months old, a delightful little fella. But what's most delightful to me is to see how much Kathleen loves being a mom. She just laughs and just loves that little boy so much. It's just so much fun to see. Aaron lives in New York City. He is a, in the film industry, although does more in uh, advertising, uh, photo shoots, that sort of thing. And he's trying to become a farmer. Uh, he has some land that he barters for up the Hudson River Valley, and he's built, oh, I'm not sure, four or five hundred-foot-long raised beds, and he's trying to raise all different kinds of things. The, the problem was there were no farmer's markets to go sell it at last year, so uh, he took a bath financially, and I think he's going to do the same thing this year, and maybe next year, <laughs> the year after, we'll see. But he just loves that stuff. Now, he's a vegan, too. Now, I tried to be a vegan for about six months. It is hard to be a vegan. I can't even be a vegetarian, but at any rate. But he's, he's an interesting guy, uh, our Aaron. Uh, was married, uh, but like many of you in your families, have experienced divorce, and, and we have too. So, uh, Next picture. Uh, this is the story of my hood. That's the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And I got to go over there for eight years uh, and study at the Bodleian Library. And it was the most fun thing I ever, have ever done uh, academically. Now, let me tell you the title of my dissertation. This is going to excite you. <laughs> Here it goes. African Christian theology emerging from the single-tiered, unitive perspective of the Akan. <laughs> the fact, thank you, just the fact that I can say it uh, is, is pretty good. Um, Really fun. I got to go to Ghana uh, for a visit for 10 days. I met some extraordinary people over there. What the, the research really was about was that the African world says there are two realities that both have to be taken absolutely seriously. Material cause and effect reality and spiritual unseen reality. And you can't know what's really going on in the world unless you know both. So a friend of mine from Liberia wrote a letter in which the Ebola crisis was just ending, and he said, we want to thank God that the wiles of the evil one have been defeated and that the doctors have been able to get control of the virus. So it wasn't either or, it was both and. Now, if you think about it, that's the way Scripture looks at things as well, isn't it? Is it any mistake that the church in Africa grew from 10 million in 1900 to 500 million 
in 2000. It is the largest expanse of the church in history. 500 million and continuing to grow. So the balance of the church has actually shifted from the global north to the global south. That's where most of the Christians are today, is in the global south. And their understanding and practice of Christianity, which is fully Trinitarian, they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the face of Christianity globally today. And the Holy Spirit is here, present, doing his work as well. Okay, what's, let's see what's next. Our story. Um, I love that quilt out in the, in the narthex. And uh, Dorothy, did you make that? She did the lettering. So my name is on there. You can't take it off, right? It, it can't be unstitched. <laughs> yes. So um, w- these are when we dedicated this new church, these former pastors came back and, and they spoke. That's Wynn Blount. Oh, let's see. Turn this off. That's Wynn Blount right there. Stephen Murray. And these two, I forget, but th- this man here... Um, yes when he came back he was an escort on cruise ships where he would dance with the ladies who were there who didn't have a husband and he, he ended up marrying a Filipino woman but he just loved dancing and, and so that's one of the things he did so I mean what an amazing group of pastors this church has had uh, over time but you know what they all had in common they taught that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the DNA uh, of this church. Okay, the next slide. That's the groundbreaking day here uh, on this site. Now, it took about a year or so, I guess, to get the whole building up, but that's the groundbreaking. So that's Kathleen and that's Aaron. But then behind you see some other people that you're going to recognize. There's Maynard and Lorreen Stivers and uh, Lillian Herbeck. Uh, some of the people who are still here and some not. Okay. But do you remember those of you that were here when we started to build this church? I remember I'd come over when the construction was just still going on and walk through it. And we had to add $1,000 a month to our offerings in order to pay the mortgage. $55,000. I was so scared. I could not imagine how we were going to do that. But you know what? We never missed a single payment. And we had three months in reserve, and Larry Larson one time at session said, why are we keeping this money here? Let's just go ahead and help pay it off. And we did. And we never lacked for what we needed. And I think the reason was this. When, when I came here... Uh, I was 31 years of age. And Becky DeShazo said, every time you opened your mouth, I expected to see braces. <laughs> Is Becky here? No, okay, I'll get her. What did I know? But you trusted that God was using the likes of me. Gene Koval. Some of you will remember Gene. Mary Lou was on the pastor nominating committee 
uh, at that time. But Gene gave me a little pamphlet from an organization called Churches Alive. And it was a small group ministry. And one paragraph in there, he said this. What if you were to assume that God has already given your church, your congregation that you're pastoring, everything that it needs right now to do everything that God wants that church to do in its time and place? What if you assume that rather than, oh, if we only had a little bit more money or if we only had a better building or if we only had more youth or if we only had more old people or if we had more big givers or whatever? He said, why not assume instead, and, and isn't this sound like God? That he's already given you everything that you need to do everything that he wants you to do. Our text <clears throat> tells us that that little church in Thessalonica, now Thessalonica probably had a population of about 35,000 people. A church founded after three weeks could barely have more than 50 families in it. But that congregation became known throughout Greece for its ministry. Would you know that that's true about you? About three months ago, I was on the phone with George McElrath. He was the pastor in Morris, Illinois. He's now in Florida. And we were talking, and he said, you know, Trevor, that church in Kishwaukee did amazing things. Everybody in the presbytery knew about this church and what we were doing at that point in time. And to this day, you are a model and an example to other churches. Last October, I was preaching at a Presbyterian church in Charlotte. <clears throat> and it's a church with a very old congregation, very old congregation. And many of the people in that congregation were saying to themselves, well, we'll just wait till the last one of us dies. We'll turn out the lights and sell the property. That was their attitude. Fine group of people, but that was their attitude. So I preached to them, but what if God has already given you everything you need? At the end of the service, a woman came up to me and said, you know, they've been trying to get me on the pastor nominating committee, and I've always said no because I'm just too discouraged. Well, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign on. You know, within six months, they had a pastor, uh, a young pastor, enthusiastic, visionary. And I predict that that church is going to blossom and flourish exactly right where it is. It was your example and what God did here at Kishwaukee that is inspiring that congregation to move forward. Friends, that's who you are and have always been and will always be an encouragement to other believers in places that you don't even know of. An encouragement to people who think our days are finished and over. No. Because God has already given everything you need to do everything he wants you uh, to do right now in this place and time. I think that's good news. I think that's the good news of the gospel for the likes of us. A God who, because his Holy Spirit is present and moving, dwelling in each one. Do you realize that the person sitting next to you right now has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them? That takes my breath away. And you have relationships with each other that you can imitate. 
Who's the person that's gone through a rough time raising children? Because I'm going through that rough time. I can imitate their faith in the midst of that. Who's the person that's lost a job and is struggling? Well, someone else here has gone through the exact same experience. How can I imitate their faith and become more like the follower of Jesus he wants me to be? Fill in the blank. There's somebody here who's gone through that experience that you can imitate in order to remain faithful, hopeful, and strong in your faith. Because that's the God who brought this church into being. That's the God who's continued to work in and through this church right now in this place. But as we come to this place, we're going to, in a moment, after prayer, come to this table where Jesus feeds us, strengthens us for all of the work that he wants us to do. Time of prayer has come. Am I responsible for that? Oh, I am. Oh, well. (laughs) There you go. I can do that because God's given me everything I need. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, how good and pleasant it is to be with brothers and sisters whose lives have become so intertwined with each other that when one rejoices, so too do the rest of us. When one mourns and grieves, so too do the rest of us. But always with the hope that you are Lord and that your love can never depart from us. So Lord, you know the needs and the dreams and the hopes, the sorrows, the burdens carried by each person here today. And Lord, you're at work. Give us the eyes to see those that perhaps need just a word of encouragement from us, a note that we might write this week just to say that we're thinking of them. Give us the ears to hear the things that are being said between the lines when we talk with one another, that we would listen with the ears of Jesus, see with the eyes of Jesus, feel with the heart of Jesus, so that no person here would ever leave without knowing that they're loved, appreciated. Father, we thank you that when you taught us to pray, it wasn't long or drawn out, or using lots of impressive words. It was a simple prayer. And we would use it now to come before you with our prayer, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.